0: I love that your final project is gonna be a podcast. That's cool.
1: Thank you. Thankfully, my mentor was just as excited about my topic as I was. In this episode, I'm joined by Tara Boyle, the executive producer of Hidden Brain, once on NPR, now separate, to discuss my topic, what makes shows like those in the Bachelor franchise neurologically addictive. Just a reminder in case you might've forgotten. My reason for inviting Tara Boyle specifically onto the podcast is to expand my knowledge and broaden the conversation i began with anika last episode getting guidance and a professional's opinion in an area where they specialize is essential for conducting research as a producer who is knowledgeable in psychology we discuss producing tactics and psychological phenomena that could explain a bachelor addiction i encourage you all to check out hidden brain once you're finished listening to this episode of my podcast and I hope you enjoy our conversations that range from habit and hatred to friction and relatability. Thanks for tuning in.
0: I've been with Hidden Brain since 2016, and I have worked in uh, public radio for a long time before that. I started in journalism actually in newspapers like a hundred thousand years ago <laughs> and sort of stumbled into radio and found that I really liked telling stories where you could hear the person telling their story in their own voice. It feels to me like audio is, is the perfect medium because it gives you more a sense of a person's personality than print does. You know, you can really get a sense of a person. When they're able to tell their story in their own voice but it, it's not distracting like visuals visuals can lead us astray in terms of biases or impressions and i think that's less likely to happen not entirely not likely to happen but less likely to happen with voice i think we approach audio with a more open mind than we do with video sometimes so working in audio has been so fun for me so i started at a station in Boston called WBUR. And I worked on Morning Edition and sort of helped the host of that show and the, and the team there uh, and learned how to write for radio, how to like write for the ear how a show gets put together. So I did that for two years. And I went to grad school down in DC. After grad school, I was really missing radio. So I went back to public radio working at a station called WAMU in DC. And I worked for a local talk show for a number of years and worked for a news magazine show after that and did some audio documentaries and things. And then came to work for Hidden Brain. So at Hidden Brain, I do a lot of different things. On the editorial side, I do a lot of work with the host thinking about what kinds of topics we cover on our show, how we frame them. I work with the producers and the researchers on once we have a script, the writing, because sometimes what you hear from Shankar, our host, is him talking off the cuff in conversation with guests, and sometimes it's him doing narrated tracking. So... I'm reviewing all that, making sure it it makes sense, that it's the best way to communicate an idea. I'm working with the producers on sound design, so making sure that the audio edits sound as smooth as they can, that music helps to elevate an idea, that it's not intrusive, that we're using clips and examples from pop culture in ways that are helpful and make an idea more clear. I'm the final ears on the show. So for both podcast and the radio version of our show, I do the final listen before we hit publish. So that's sort of my job. That's a lot. That's a lot of stuff. Um, My academic background is not in psychology. My undergraduate degrees, I have a bachelor in journalism and a bachelor in French. My graduate degree was in international affairs. So I studied international development and African studies. So I did not have a background in psychology before coming to hidden brain. But that said, you know, I've obviously picked up a lot about social science and psychology in particular in the years since I've been on the show, but it is I I'm not an expert by any means. I don't have that academic training myself. Really the the way we divide our expertise on Hidden Brain is I am really focused a lot on the journalism and the ideas and how we communicate the ideas and Shankar as well as a couple other members of our team, are really our in-house social science experts to vet the research that we're looking at to see if it's rigorous, to put the topics that we're looking at in, in like a broader context of the social sciences and themes that tend to come up over and over again, like the, there's a robust
1: body of literature around something that we're covering. That's That's fine, honestly, because I just wanted to Be able to go back and forth with someone who is like a part of that. Because also, I guess the most important part, since I did have a psychology professor, but I just didn't really want to talk with him like this. And I thought, well, maybe like getting a producer's perspective is still beneficial for this project because a lot Uh of it is producing. And because I could have packaged The Bachelor in a completely different way, but they chose to do it this way. So I thought uh-huh. that would be interesting. Are you like a Bachelor fan or have you heard of The Bachelor before? Yeah,
0: so I, I'm not a regular uh, viewer of it, but I have seen it, sort of know the concept. Yeah, that's where I come at The Bachelor from.
1: Okay, so there's like this question of ethics of the whole show and what the producers are consciously choosing to keep do you find this like ethical is it ethical to expose all these personal things to a big population of people is that a responsible thing to do as a producer
0: yeah that's such a good question you know reality shows are interesting territory because it's it's not journalism right so it's it's not a documentary so they are not necessarily bound to codes of ethics that journalists would follow in terms of for example when we think about interviews that we do for our show we you know we talk very clearly with our guests about the fact that any media that you're a part of that that is created in today's world is going to exist out there forever. You know, it's always going to be searchable, findable in some capacity, particularly in the U.S. with our privacy laws. You know, in in Europe, there there are some more ways to kind of scrub things and, and keep your life more private. But in the U.S., we try to be pretty explicit with people about the size of our audience and about you know, the fact that their story is, is going to live out there. It's really important that we do that because people are sharing a lot of really vulnerable things with us. We did an episode a few months ago with a woman who got scammed like in a catfishing-type scam, and that was a very vulnerable story for her to share with us, and we just needed to make clear to her what she was signing up for, basically. And with reality shows, I don't know if they follow the same process for letting people know. I am sure they have people sign all kinds of waivers and and disclaimers so that they know we're gonna take this material and edit it in ways that we want to. But hearing that and, and signing something that says that and then sort of understanding what that can mean in practice, I think are very different things if you're not working in media. And it is really easy to take things out of context to heighten the drama of them one thing that i find interesting is that in some ways it feels a little bit like mutually exploitative the the people who are going on have their own agendas and their own reasons for wanting to be in the spotlight and i guess the question is like how much are viewers aware of that you know as a viewer you really want to believe that people are showing up to really make a good faith effort to find someone to be in a, in a relationship with, but you have to like shut down the sort of cynical part of your mind, I think, yeah. <laughs> to really enjoy watching the show. Reality TV is like a really big bucket. Like there's a lot of different things that fall into that and different producers I think have, you know, different shows have different codes for that. But I actually think even more so than individual producer choices, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff below the surface with the way these shows are produced and the way they kind of trigger our psychology that may not even be fully conscious to the people working on the show. So I actually have a couple episodes of Hidden Brain that I had in mind that I wanted to suggest to you for, to think about in terms of your question of why why are these shows so bingeable?
1: And I did go through some of the episodes that I thought talked about things that I've been researching and exploring. And one of them was the Whoop the episode where the woman was talking about how people have these dreams or fantasies that are too positive. But fantasizing about it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen or that you'll have the successful outcome that you want. And I Uh thought that really connected with my topic because something that I've been researching is like fantasies and how our fantasies affect our relationships and our lives or even like the content that we watch. And so part of my hypothesis is people who watch The Bachelor obsessively probably have an unrealistic fantasy of romance that they can feed into by watching The Bachelor because The Bachelor sets up These really unrealistic dates or scenarios that kind of make it feel like this is a fairy tale and like this can even happen to a regular person like me, blah, blah, blah. That's kind of the idea that they have on The Bachelor. How she discussed you have to have your wish and then have realize your obstacles and set up a plan. The people who are watching these shows are probably stuck in the wish area. Or they might not (laughs) even know what the actual wish is because a fantasy tap into your unconscious desires. So you might not even know if I'm going to be in a relationship, I kind of want my partner to protect me and act kind of like a knight in shining armor to come and save me. And so in your relationship, these are the subconscious expectations that you have, but your partner doesn't know that. And then I also listened to um, an episode that talked about what things you need to make a relationship work and the man who was talking was talking about how in relationships the thing that we want the most is understanding but it's like how can mm-hmm. you have that understanding if you yourself don't even know what the issue is and then there's like the communication aspect and stuff like that and I think the bachelor kind of capitalizes on using those subconscious desires and creating a fantasy-like world for people to indulge their bad habits or bad like, qualities in. So yeah. That's... Other
0: ones that I was thinking of are, we did an episode quite a while ago called Pedestals and Guillotines. And it's about, it's a sort of evolutionary biology look at human relationships. And it's, it's sort of, I think, gets to the idea of people hate watching reality TV and, Basically, you're simultaneously, you know, in, in some ways, the, the people that you're seeing on the screen are like alphas, the top of the pyramid people, at least in terms of certain qualities like looks, beautiful clothing, sort of stereotypical things that society tells us to emulate. So we from that perspective, there's there's that admiration factor when you're watching a show like that. But then there's also um, this sort of instinct that we have when it comes to alphas that we're looking for opportunities to sort of uh, cut them down to size, to push them off of their pedestals. And I think that is partly why shows like The Bachelor can be so delicious, is there's always at least one villain, right? Like Mm -hmm. somebody who's there to mix it up and cause trouble. And watching to see what happens, like if that person is going to win or if they're going to get taken down a few notches by the kinder people <laughs> on the show, I think is part of what makes it fascinating for us. Like we want to see the people who are obnoxious or who are sort of throwing their weight around to get cut down to size as a general rule in societies. Um, so I think that that's, it's playing a lot with that mentality. So that was one that came to mind for me. Another one that comes to mind is we did an episode on envy a while back it's called counting other people's blessings mm. and basically it's it's about why it can sort of capture our minds and make us feel you know not great uh but also the sort of twin emotion of schadenfreude when something bad happens to someone we envy and like how great that can feel mm. uh even though we don't want to admit it that when when bad things happen to people that we envy that feeds a part of us in a way that is sort of ugly to look at but very real. you know when when like The Bachelor betrays someone or like goes into the fantasy suite with someone else or especially if it's a character we don't really like on the show that gets hurt like that you know thinking about it from the psychology of the viewer and why the viewer finds the show sort of resistible, Another thing that I was thinking about, and this is not necessarily specific to The Bachelor, but I think it's just about how people stream TV now, is that watching shows on streaming services, uh, they've been really ingenious in terms of like Netflix, you know, just queuing up the next episode. And that gets to an idea in psychology um, called friction. And basically when you want someone to consume a lot of, your thing or to like get over the hump to make a purchase that they wouldn't otherwise make reducing friction is key to doing that. So like, for example, your iPhone, making it super easy to make a purchase by just, you know, clicking twice on the button on the right, that's reducing friction and increasing sales. The iPhone makes your life more convenient. You're going to spend more time on your iPhone. That benefits Apple and it benefits the companies that are advertising stuff to you on social media or wherever you're buying stuff. And in the case of like Netflix or other streaming services, like having it set up so that the next episode just is queued to play, like the structure is just set up in a way to make it more likely that you're going to get swept along. But I don't know, people I follow on social media do a lot of watching The Bachelor, as it's air, like live watching it. It might be a different strategy. It might be creating this idea of scarcity where rather than giving you something you can binge all at once, it's creating hype and build up. And then you are watching with friends and and people who are also fans. And that's really about creating community and building bonds between people around this shared experience. And that's a totally different approach, but also a really clever way to make a guaranteed watch for people.
1: the packaging and getting listeners in. Is that part of your job somewhat? Figuring out how to keep someone engaged is a huge part
0: of the work that we do. If you listen to a Hidden Brain episode, basically it's always really important to us that we start with the content of the show. So you'll almost always hear This is Hidden Brain, I'm Shankar Vedantam, and then we launch into the topic. And it's really important to us to to get the value proposition of what we are gonna be focusing on that day out to the audience as fast as possible and to try to give them the sort of what's in it for me proposition very quickly in an episode. So that's part of our strategy as producers is, is to right out of the gate, deliver a promise of here's what you're going to hear when you listen to this week's show. So usually we do that intro in the first three minutes and then we have a quick break and then we go into the broader content. So that's a very explicit structural decision that we've made in trying to keep people engaged. If you look at podcast data, it's really interesting and like very sobering for producers to see how quickly people can bail on something they're listening to. Like if you're not into it in the first five minutes, you know, people will drop off dramatically. And so the goal is to keep them through that, at least that first five minutes. And then once you do, once people are really invested in the topic, you have a much greater chance of keeping them through much more of the episode. So I don't know how that works on The Bachelor, but I would guess it's somewhat similar in that you don't want to have too slow a burn. You want to give people a sense fairly early on that there is something really tantalizing that they're going to get out of this experience things that are probably not surprising but cliffhangers you know before you go to a break to deliver the audience like a here's what you're going to get if you stick around type of teaser is important as well our show is a little bit unusual in that after we do that initial intro to the topic we do like to sort of unfold an idea sort of slowly and sort of deliberately. We want people to be able to think about the ideas we're talking about in the context of their own lives and feel like they're a part of discovering the insights that we're sharing on the show. And you can't really do that fast. You have to have the person kind of reflecting on the ideas with you and simmering on it. And that takes a little while. So. I think that approach of ours is a little bit different than particularly TV where you're really time constrained and you're trying to pack
1: as much into that like
0: broadcast structure.
1: I mean all the episodes are always two hours long and then two hours (laughs) yeah two hours long and then towards the end of that season they'll have like a two-day special where it's back-to-back two-hour episodes or they'll have the last episode be three hours they have the host and they have the bachelor bachelorette and then they have a studio live studio audience and they're all watching the final episode together and then talking about it, and then watching and then talking about it and then at the end they'll have the final three guys or women come talk to the bachelor or bachelorette about the experience and everything for me when I started watching, I had no intention of ever watching a romantic reality TV show. So I'm surprised that I'm here two years later, obsessed. <laughs> but it was a especially dramatic season. What The Bachelor promises is drama. You'll always be entertained by something. And yeah. um, each episode, I was talking with an ex-Bachelor watcher, so... He used to have, like, a blog and, like, a fan club that he was a part of. And now he doesn't watch it at all. Too busy as a family and everything. So he was saying that part of the reason why he stopped watching other than, like, his busy schedule was that he got used to the content. Like, he knew it was going to happen. It's, like, the same thing over and over again. And there's so many commercial uh-huh. breaks and it just wasn't doing it for him anymore. But I think, like, that's the difference between people who aren't Attached to those fantastical ideas, and then people who are just like hate watching, as you were saying, or they just like to watch other people be embarrassed or something. Because I feel like if I'm not attached to the show for some other reason than just it's funny to watch, then it's gonna be easy for me to just stop watching. But Uh if like there's another reason why I'm so attached to not only the contestants but the show in general then it's going to be harder for me to kind of rip myself away from it yeah actually that makes me think about
0: um we did an episode on habits called creatures of habit that you should totally listen to because it it absolutely gets at this point that creating new habits is really hard and there's a lot of science out there about how if you want to like create an exercise habit Uh, how long it takes for like doing it every day for it to actually become a habit that you don't think about anymore. I think that that habit based behavior is part of the strategy for shows like that, especially people who have been watching since the beginning where it is becoming formulaic for them. But the habit is so strong and you know maybe the rituals of watching it with friends or you know a lot of people it's it's more than just like the actual content but it's that like communal experience of watching with someone else all those factors sort of override the fact that if you really were pushed to be like is this your favorite show you'd be like well no it's kind of you know it's I know what's going to happen and this the way they structure it like I know sort of the basic arc but yeah, when it becomes a habit for you, it's much more likely that you're going to keep going with it. I think, you know, as you were saying, like it keeps getting kind of more and more crazy. Like the bachelor has run away. He's jumped over the fence. I feel like to ask people to commit two hours is a huge chunk of time in today's, you know, back when they created the bachelor, there were not as many things competing with it. And now like With the number of streaming services, the the other things that are like podcasts, other things that might be competing for your time. Asking people to commit two hours to any one thing is a big ask. And so I, I would imagine that the producers of the show feel a lot of pressure for people who have watched a lot of it and sort of know the formula to like keep trying to surprise
1: those viewers, like keep raising the stakes. That's super hard to do. You were saying that you might sit down and watch a few episodes. I was debating whether I would tell you to watch the season that's happening right now or the last season or specific season because the season right now is especially bad and not even content-wise. Not how. It's bad because The Bachelor is horrible and he he's, he's not mean, <laughs> he's not mean, he's not doing anything that's like inappropriate, he's just a bad bachelor and it's... Funny because my idea of why he's a bad bachelor is because he's literally the most regular guy ever. At least to me, like he seems so regular. He doesn't have like the confidence to hold the presence of thirty women or to be able to command the room and have the confidence to be like, You're starting drama, like I don't have time for this, you're out. He seems people pleasing and he's just like, you know, I don't know if the women are gonna be happy with this decision it is about the women, but the concept of The Bachelor, it's about you. So the women are just like there for you and Uh you just worry about you. But he is like a normal human being. And he's like, well, (laughs) there's other people whose experiences are going on. And he's attentive, I noticed. Not that past bachelors aren't attentive to the women, but he's really investing himself in each relationship other than past bachelors who are kind of prioritizing certain women he's really like taking his time with each woman and that's not entertaining i know isn't it so funny It like, gets so hilarious that it's called reality tv right mm-hmm. it's like actual reality
0: is is boring like the actual work of making a humane
1: relationship with someone is like not great television sorry to interrupt go yeah, ahead. no that's good that's good and um <laughs> you can tell like the first one-on-one date he had was so awkward it wasn't even like funny awkward and they the producers didn't use that awkwardness to like make it a comedic these people have no chemistry but he really wants there to be chemistry and you can tell but that's not how the batch is supposed to work and then the drama that's like within the women's um just like them in the house together and the drama that occurs there is it's not forced but you can tell that the producers are like this is what we need to highlight to keep people entertained but uh-huh. for me as a viewer and a lot of my friends who I'm talking to about it they don't like that it's just annoying so that's kind of the reasons why the season is especially bad the bachelor is navigating really tricky
0: waters in in modern society like in a post me too world <laughs> fantasy suites are you know and creepy as hell and some yeah. from some perspectives um and on the other hand they don't want to look like they're slut shaming women right and they want to sort of have this perspective of being feminist even though like is The Bachelor really feminist? I mean, I think they think straight female viewers probably want the guys to seem really vulnerable and sensitive. And so they might be trying to play that up to make this season's Bachelor seem more desirable to the audience. They're trying to speak to like your stereotypes while also speaking to newer, like these old embedded stereotypes that we all grew up with, like as five-year-olds, you know, but then also speak to the newer parts of our thinking about how things have evolved, and what's okay, and what's not okay.
1: So they're trying to like have it both ways. And that's hard and super awkward. How do you? Well, I guess that probably isn't an issue on your show, because there's no like reality aspect. But maybe when you're telling the stories of your listeners, do you ever encounter a situation where maybe this is too personal to include? Or is it totally up to the person who's telling their personal story how much they choose to keep or not? So we don't We
0: don't ever share our episodes before they are published. So we won't give the episode to an interviewee and, and allow them to sort of green light or veto anything that we do for just journalistic ethics reasons. Mm-hmm. You know, there needs to be sort of a hands-off relationship between the interviewee and the journalist. But that said, we when we know we're going to be talking about really sensitive topics, we have a conversation before the interview starts that says, you know, we're going to be talking about X, Y, and Z. Here is the frame of the episode that we're working on, thinking of and what the context in which it'll be placed, which is really important um, to let the interviewee know. You know, with audio, you can uh, not give someone's full name, you can use a pseudonym, but it's really important to be on the same page about that stuff before you start the interview and to and to make sure you know if everything is going to be on the record, if something's going to be on background, if so, what, is it okay to record? Yeah, all those things from a journalistic perspective are super important to be on the same page on before you start an interview with someone.
1: So what happens if while you're interviewing someone and say they are talking about... Um... Me Too or something that has to do with feminism and you're interviewing a man on the topic and they happen to say something that's really misogynistic, would you keep it in there as a journalist or are there rules against including anything in the product that will villainize the person you're interviewing?
0: Being a journalist is really interesting because you have obligations to your audience and you have obligations to the people that you interview. And there's often tension between those two and they might be competing with each other. Certainly when you are interviewing someone who is like a public official or someone who needs to be held accountable, then it's really important. You're not like doing PR for that person. And it's important that the public know if that person says something misogynistic or says something, um, that is out of line with, the reasons why that person is holding that office. I mean, we don't tend to do those sorts of interviews on Hidden Brain. Our interviews tend to be people opting in to sharing stories of their lives with us in in really vulnerable ways. And sometimes there are things that people share with us that are just not relevant to the idea that we're pursuing on the show, Um, and we'll, we'll cut it for that reason. We're always trying to balance the relationship that we have and the trust that an interviewee has in sharing something really vulnerable with us, with the audience's right to have as much information as you can provide them about an interviewee, a situation. So it's it's a it's complicated. It's a it's a balance. Definitely, I think on a show like The Bachelor, they're making, you know, very different choices, but they are, I'm sure making a lot of choices about how they present the people on the show and what they leave on the cutting room floor and what they choose to, you know, maybe take out of context or highlight. So it is really hard to know, I think, what you're signing up for before you go on a, a show like The Bachelor, you know, because you never know exactly how something you say could be used. Like ultimately to do any sort of interview or any sort of public appearance like that is is a leap of faith. You have to trust that the people interviewing you are going to obviously, again, not be your PR people, but have your best interest at heart. And I think when you go on a reality show, that's not the driving motivator of a producer. They're there to make good TV and good TV is rarely the thing that's going to always show you in the best light, you know.